The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Exploress. Time traveling through women's history, one era at a time. I'm your host, Kate Armstrong. Mid-19th century America was a pretty buttoned-up place. For women, marriage and family were their destiny, their lives confined to a small and private sphere. They could toil, but they couldn't vote. They could work their lands, but often couldn't own it. They were laced into corsets, surrounded by a piece of clothing called a cage. The whole thing sounds pretty constricting. But women in this era did plenty of fascinating things, both within the boundaries of polite society and well outside of them. That was especially true when the Civil War broke out in 1861. War has a way of rewriting the rules of social engagement. In a divided country, many women found themselves driven and inspired to become more than they were told they were supposed to be. Over the course of this season, We'll travel back in time and explore the world of the 19th century American woman, especially during wartime. We'll meet ladies who pulled on pants and became soldiers, tended to the wounded in a time when nursing was still very much a man's game, wielded their status as the weaker sex to become successful and dangerous spies. We'll meet suffragists, spiritualists, liberators, first ladies. We'll immerse ourselves in the details of their lives, from the everyday to the extraordinary, to try and see it through their eyes. So what was life like for a woman in mid-19th century America? Grab your parasol, your corset, and your heaviest perfume. Let's go traveling. this era, our lives will be shaped quite a lot by where we're born and in what circumstances. For starters, let's travel back to an upwardly mobile white household in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Try to imagine it. It's early morning and dark outside the windows. Maybe you turn on an oil-burning lantern set beside the bed. You certainly don't have any electricity to work with. That won't come until 1882. And even then, most still use oil lanterns until the 1920s. You can use a modern match to light it, though, as those have been around for a couple of decades. Don't take too deep a whiff of what's in the lantern, though. It's probably whale fat. But at least it gives a nice, steady burn. Maybe a maid has lit a fire in the grate to warm the room up. That maid might be white, or she might be African-American. If she's the latter, she might be a free woman, or she might be a slave. Though, we hope not. In the early 1800s, the U.S. passed legislation that barred citizens from either exporting slaves or participating in the international slave trade. But emancipation was a state-by-state decision, so while the slave trade was abolished in D.C. in 1849, It won't be until 1862, a year after the war starts, that all African Americans in the city will be declared free. Keen for a hot shower to start your day? Me too, but no such luck. You'll be lucky to have a water closet at home with anything vaguely resembling a flushing toilet. Queen Elizabeth I had a flushing toilet installed around 1596, but that was way ahead of its time. The toilet didn't really take off until the invention of the S-Bend toilet and the Industrial Revolution. 
But even then, indoor toilets weren't installed in many homes until the 1880s. Aren't you glad you know that? The White House first got indoor plumbing 30 years ago, but most American cities don't yet have proper sewer systems. And we're still working out the hygiene and sanitation situation. So more than likely, since you're in the city and you have some money, you'll have a privy somewhere out the back of the house. But it's really cold, so let's just use the chamber pot. You know, that thing that looks like a fancy bedpan. It's either under the bed, or it might be discreetly tucked away in a piece of furniture with a fold-back lid. Fancy. Anyway, we were talking about taking a shower. What you're more likely to have on hand is called a sitz bath. Basically, it's a porcelain basin you'll sit in to immerse your more delicate parts, along with a wash basin and a bathtub. But you're probably not going to want to use the bathtub. First, because carting warm water into it by the bucketful is going to take a lot of time. Also, because washing too frequently will expose us to disease. Or so the theory goes. In this era, we don't know much about germs yet. We're still working with the miasmatic theory of disease. The idea that it's bad air that makes people sick. So prepare yourself for drinking water that probably isn't up to your standard. You do want to bathe. The doctors all agree on that. But there is a specific way to do it. You don't want to bathe your whole body at once, because that'll strip away your body's natural defensive oils, according to a book on female beauty from the 1840s. The effects of a hot bath are evidently debilitating. The body loses too much in such a bath. Baths heated to above 110 degrees have lately, in several instances, been known to produce immediate insanity. But more on female insanity later. A note for our time-traveling gentlemen listeners. Please stick with us. I promise that this will be my only foray into monthly cycles and feminine hygiene. Well... Not really. But there will also be mild swearing and occasional duels. Besides, you might learn something. So be strong. I believe in you. Go ahead and take a quick sponge bath. But just make sure that you don't enjoy it. A woman's sensitive regions should be explored as little as possible. The Bible says so. You wouldn't want to, as they say, self-abuse yourself by accident. That might also cause insanity, or finger warts, sterility, cancer, or droopy breasts. If you happen to be suffering from your monthly while on this particular journey, I'm not really sure I can help you. Victorian ladies didn't exactly leave behind helpful journal entries on what they did on heavy flow days. You're wearing a lot of layers, so maybe you do nothing. But there are some things you can buy. They look like garter belts with a wool rag attached. That might do. Have cramps? Definitely don't call the doctor. For one, their methods of helping you probably aren't really going to help you. They might even make you worse, to be honest. Plus, they don't really know much about how your body works. You could try to wash your hair, but I wouldn't recommend it. Plus, says a beauty book from the 1840s, it's probably bad for you. The practice of washing the head with water, either warm or cold, requires considerable judgment. As from it not unfrequently result headache, earache, toothache, and complaints of the eyes. Anyway, the strong stuff you'd use to strip your hair of grease, like ammonia, is going to take layers of your scalp off and burn your nose holes. Same goes for conditioning your hair. I found contemporary recipes that include bear grease, fox grease, goose grease, burnt and fresh butter, and white onions. Those aren't that bad compared to, say, laudanum, charcoal, lead, and liquid pitch, which you could use to dye your hair. Or you could just try this. Dissolve steel fillings in good vinegar. With this vinegar, which will then resemble thick oil, wash your hair as often as you think fit. 
and it will make it black in a very short time. So let's put on some super heavy perfumes instead. That's how everyone masks their stink in this era. And with so little bathing happening, we're all bound to stink just a little. It's Sunday, which means we're going to church. So let's get dressed in our Sunday best. Pay attention now. These clothes are going to play a major role in many of this season's dramas. I can see you're searching bureau drawers for some underwear. I wouldn't bother. You won't be wearing any. Instead, slip on your chemise, which is kind of like a light summer dress. Then slide on some stockings, probably wool ones, which you'll clip on with some garters. Now it's time for your drawers. These are, essentially, half or three-quarter length pants with a big slit running down the crotch seam. So... You're wearing crotchless shorts. That's right, you'll be hanging in the breeze. But you'll have on so many layers that no one is going to notice. Just don't fall over. Okay, so now let's put on a corset. I know what you're imagining. That scene from every period film you've ever seen involving corsets, where someone strains to pull the strings so tight that ribs crack and breathing starts to feel unlikely. And yes, a lightly plump and curvy hourglass figure is popular here. But not everyone is striving for Scarlett O'Hara's 17-inch waist. Doctors of the day say that tightening them too much can cause all sorts of problems. Consumption, naturally. Hunchback, abortion, epilepsy. The list goes on. They are, confusingly, thought by some to be good for the morals, but by others to be too exciting. They're constricting to be sure, but most women probably aren't pulling them in super tight. They're almost like spanks or bras or the bodysuits we wear today, meant to smooth things out and keep them from jiggling. And I can tell you now, Victorians do not approve of things jiggling. There are corsets for every lady, even ones for pregnant women, built with flexibility in mind. Okay, so now you're cinched into your corset. Now it's time for your cage crinoline. Picture a waist-height church bell. Better yet, picture a giant bird cage. This is your crinoline, and you're going to cinch it around your waist. Then you're going to sway back and forth, going ding, ding. What? That's what I'm doing. What is this contraption for, you wonder? Well, it's to hold up the petticoats you'll be putting on over it, creating what's called a hoop skirt. The horizontal bars might be made of whalebone, but they're more likely to be made of steel. Invented by a Brit in the 1850s, steel versions can be made cheaply in factories. A year ago, in 1859, a factory in New York was making three or 4,000 of these things a day, using upwards of 300,000 yards of steel. The more bars it has, the fancier the crinoline, as it's going to create a smoother skirt line. Having fun yet? I've always thought that corsets and big, heavy skirts would be a punishment to wear. I mean, this thing is literally called a cage. But it turns out that women of almost all classes and stations wear hoop skirts in mid-century America. Why? It wasn't just about fashion. Think of it this way. Before hoop skirts, women were wearing upwards of six heavy petticoats to try and puff up their outfits and preserve their modesty, which would get all tangled up around their legs when they walked. Having a crinoline means that you only have to wear one petticoat, making everything much lighter. It also means that your legs are free to move. You can stretch, you can walk. You can spread eagle under there, and no one is going to know. Imagine how good that would feel to women who are used to drowning in layers. But there are women of your station wearing something else. Suffragette Amelia Bloomer thought women should just go ahead and wear pants. Well, not pants, pantaloons, which had a short, balloony skirt and full pant legs that remind me a lot of a whimsical pirate, allowing her more freedom to move. It's from her we actually get the word bloomers. 
But these skirt and pant combos are brutally mocked in the press, so most women aren't wearing them. Women in pants are called many things. Harlots, spies, troublemakers, aberrations. This is an issue we'll have cause to talk about a lot this season. But more on ladies in trousers later. You're still only halfway dressed. Now put on another petticoat and finally your dress. Do your crotchless pants make more sense now? Can you imagine trying to take off your underwear with all these layers on? Or trying to use an outhouse toilet with that cage? I didn't get married in a big puffy dress, but for those of you who did, you feel me. Even so, I feel 100% confident I am going to fall over in this thing at some point, or light myself on fire. That is a serious issue with the style of this era, one that was reported on with frequency. In an 1863 article entitled A New Kind of Willful Murder, which described the seemingly countless number of female victims of the combination of the crinoline and the open hearth, wrote, How many more country women must be burnt alive, crushed, disemboweled, or drowned before reform is done? While a few others recounted stories of women saved from drowning and from harsh falls off of cliffs by the voluminous folds of their belled-out skirts. Men certainly have many complaints about the crinoline. It swings lasciviously as women walk, inspiring public lust and, potentially, revealing undergarments. It's a manifestation of women's vanity, encouraging her to think more of her looks than anything else. But really, the crinoline can actually be a defiant act of a woman's agency. A crinoline skirt gives her more control over her body. She can conceal a pregnancy, for instance. Or, as some newspapers warn, trick men into thinking they're marrying a supple young thing when really she's anything but. They can hide many things under its balloony circumference. With the crinoline, women can literally put a barrier between their bodies and the rest of their world. They can make men move aside for them, proclaiming their presence, claiming public space in a way they've never been able to do before. This isn't a way to cage women. It is, in some respects, a way to free them. Put on another petticoat and, finally, your dress, which will be high-necked with buttons up the front and long sleeves that puff at the top. You're now covered from neck to wrists to ankles. I mean, we are going to church, not a dinner party. So, no cleavage. Even with the crinoline, we're wearing a lot of underthings. For one, because your dress has probably never been washed. That's right, never. And it never will. That's because it's handmade and the dyes and fabrics are delicate while the soaps of this time are filled with harsh corrosive ingredients like lye. But your white underthings, made of linen or cotton, those can be washed. So can those white ruffs you've attached to your neckline and sleeves. Worried about pit stains? So am I. Now let's do your hair and makeup. Well, actually, you won't be doing your makeup. Makeup is only for actresses and ladies of loose morals. It's mostly horrible stuff, anyway, filled with things like lead and belladonna and the same stuff you'd use to make ink. You could try some of the recipes suggested by beauty books of the day for potions and balms to improve your skin. Wax mixed with spermaceti, anyone? Google spermaceti. Go ahead. I'll wait. Or maybe you could try some balm of Mecca, but it will probably blow your face up a few sizes. So now it's time to lace up your very tight boots, using a fancy little hook to cinch up all the tiny, tiny buttons. Now let's walk downstairs and into our sphere, the woman's sphere. Mid-19th century America was right in the middle of the Victorian age. Named after Queen Victoria, that grand dame of the English throne whose influence made its way over to America and permeated life there. It may seem strange that America would turn back to its former mother country for cultural guidance, but remember, America is still quite young. It's been less than 100 years since it became an independent nation, and it's still figuring out what it is and what it wants to be. 
It's worth noting, though, that while America may sometimes turn to its old mother country for social guidance, many artists and thinkers are cutting ties with the old world. They're falling in love with the American landscape, creating distinctly American myths. This is the age of the transcendentalists and American romantics like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Walt Whitman, and Emily Dickinson. America even has its own dictionary, compiled by Noah Webster, that works to separate American English from the British version from whence it came. Though Victoria was a strong-ass woman in many respects, a shaper of views and a runner of monarchies, her thoughts on a woman's place in the world seem pretty narrow. In response to the rise of the women's suffrage movement, she wrote, The Queen is anxious to enlist everyone who can speak or write to join in checking this mad, wicked folly of women's rights, with all its attendant horrors, on which her poor, feeble sex is bent, forgetting every sense of womanly feeling and propriety. Instead, she believed in something that came to be known as the cult of true womanhood. The idea that society ran best when women and men had their different duties split up into separate spheres. A man's sphere is the public one. A true man was supposed to create and manage wealth. A woman's sphere is the private one. Marriage is her job, bearing and educating children her sacred duty. A true woman was virtuous, gentle, domestic. It's up to her to make home into a refuge from what feels like a fast-changing world. And it is changing quickly. We're on the cusp of a second industrial revolution, and we've invented the items and processes that will change much about the way we live. Engines, rubber vulcanization, electricity, factory production. Cities on the East Coast are getting bigger fast particularly in the Northeast, with factories employing newly invented marvels like that newfangled sewing machine, in a time when most clothing was still hand-sewn. This industry boom brought immigrants to America, especially Irish and Germans, who've been flooding into the country for the last couple of decades. From 1820 to 1870, over 7.5 million immigrants came to the U.S., more than the entire population of the country in 1810. With the West opening up and expanding and populations booming, America just isn't what it was in 1776. So why has such a powerful woman locked us into a life of hearth and home? Well, she doesn't see it like that. Think of it this way. In order for society to function well, the theory goes, everyone has to play a certain role. Someone has to make the money, and someone else has to raise the children and keep things at home running smoothly. For those with money, that isn't just to make the home a happy place. It's to help her husband, and thus her family, get ahead in life. Before online networking and email intros, important connections were often made at dinner parties and functions. The home is an office of sorts, a way for the upwardly mobile to display their wealth. A well-kept house is an advertisement for success. A dinner filled with many different kinds of forks matters. In this way, men and women complement each other. And anyway, don't these rules reflect our true natures? A true man is aggressive, competitive, rational. A true woman is pure, pious, submissive, and domestic. And anyway, don't these rules reflect our true natures? My modern mind rebels against this, of course. But this wasn't about women being stupid and weak and men being strong and capable. Consider this passage from the 1856 edition of Godey's Ladies' Book, the most popular monthly magazine of its day and mostly written by and aimed at women. The companion of man should be able thoroughly to sympathize with him. Her intellect should be as well-developed as his. We do not believe in the mental inequality of the sexes. We believe that the man and the woman have each a work to do, for which they are specially qualified and in which they are called to excel. Though the work is not the same, it is equally noble and demands an equal exercise of capacity. An overwhelming number of people here are Protestant. 
That really matters because religion plays a huge role in the cultural framework of this era. For a woman to be pious, virtuous, and a moral pillar was more than a religious goal. For the upper and middle classes particularly, it was a marker of good breeding and good social standing. But more than that, it helps to explain why some women, even the majority of women, don't support women's suffrage. According to the Christian Moors of the time, marriage fuses man and wife. They are as one. His opinions are hers, and thus he speaks for her. I imagine that this is what helped spawn what I call the Angel or Jezebel model. Did some man make advances on you in the street? Well, you probably were swirling your parasol. Harlot. Did he sneer at you? You were probably laughing too loud. You Harlot. So that whole she asked for it argument we're still grappling with in our century. A woman's moral strength is so important that she can actually redeem sinners. So important to the greater good of all. And maybe that's why so much importance is placed on protecting a woman's virtue. We wouldn't want to offend her virgin ears. So undergarments aren't actually called that. They're called unmentionables, or nether garments, or, my favorite, sit-down-upons. We don't single out arms and legs. That would be crass. So we just call them limbs. That's why, as we leave the house for church, we'll be walking with a mother or father or married sister, protected at all times from anything that might tarnish your innocent soul. That's the dream, anyway. In practice, I can't imagine any women met these standards. The cult of true womanhood only applies to us in this scenario because we're white and of the middle or higher class. The enslaved, immigrants, the poor, Native Americans, free black women, were all knocked out of the running just by being what they were. Their lives looked very little, or nothing, like what we're experiencing now. But we'll walk in some of their shoes later. Okay, so let's walk to church. Just make sure you put on your gloves and hat before going outside. Putting on gloves in the street makes you look like a hussy, and we're responsible for making sure men don't look at us in a sexual manner. The first thing you'll probably notice about the nation's capital is that everything is covered with a thin layer of grime. Soon we will be too. That's because industry is booming. Everything not powered by oil is being powered by coal, and there are no environmental regulations to govern it. So pretty much everything is sooty and a little grimy. It's a good thing we're wearing those boots, because you'll be stepping in things that you won't want to think about too hard. As you walk, you'll probably see carriages trying not to hit stray pigs and dogs. The streets are muddy, and depending on where you are, probably smell like trash. While we're walking, let's enjoy some of the delightful slang words we might hear in passing. Hedge creeper. Noun, a prostitute. She's no common hedge creeper. She's a lady. Wagtail. Noun. A promiscuous woman. I don't mind consorting with the occasional wagtail. Flapdoodle. Noun. A sexually incompetent man. Or just nonsense. That flapdoodle doesn't know his ass from his elbow. What a load of flapdoodle. By the horn spoons. An exclamation of surprise, shock, or anger. By the horn spoons, General. You sure know how to put away your whiskey. Gall nipper. This sounds bad, but really, it just means mosquito. By God, these gall nippers are trying to eat me alive. Anyway, so now we're in church. Oh look, there's Tom Hiddleston, who has also traveled back in time with us. I never travel without him. And is now sporting a truly spectacular beard. You're pretty keen on him as a marriage prospect, but you can't actively pursue him. You have to let him come to you. Being too forward might cause a man to lose his manliness and a woman to lose her supple moral essence. Also, brazen flirting makes you look like a Jezebel. Looseness speaks to an adult mind, and no man wants to hitch himself to that wagon. 
A woman's place in this century and in this society can be tenuous. There are certain mistakes you won't be able to come back from. One fall from grace is all it takes to end up unmarriable, which would be horrible. Because as a woman, there are only so many ways you can support yourself. But since we do have some money, we can afford to end up spinsters by the age of 25. It won't look great, but it's workable. Not so for women born in less stable financial situations. For those women, the majority of women, they might be maids or cooks. They might be farmers or laborers or shop assistants. They might be a healer or a midwife, but not a doctor. Although medical schools for women aren't that far off. They might be factory workers, though you best believe the pay is bad and decidedly less than what the men are making. And then, of course, you could be a prostitute, but I wouldn't recommend it. It's not a glamorous life in this era, or, I imagine, any other. And your chances of getting a venereal disease are pretty high. Things were a bit different in the West, where things were still taking shape, but we're on the East Coast. And that means that your best bet for a secure life is to get married. It's the safest course, at least as far as your finances are concerned. So let's talk about women's rights for a minute. In this age, women can't vote. Not even close. Why? Because that falls into the public sphere. The man's sphere. Also, because our husbands will obviously vote for us. This takes us back to the Christian ideals that are ingrained in our culture. If you join your life with Tom's, you're entering into a contract. Victorian society is romantic and is all for you marrying for love if you can. But it's still a contract in which you essentially give up your citizenship. As an essay from the 1790s put it, a lady has the luxury of being able to cheerfully submit to the government of her own choosing. Entering into this contract means you can't enter into others, sign legal papers, you can't be held responsible for yourself, which is perhaps why we see even privileged women during this era being tossed into sanitariums without anyone kicking up much of a fuss. Twelve years ago, Elizabeth Cady Stanton organized the first convention for women's rights in Seneca Falls, New York, where ladies talked about wanting many things, equal pay, improved child custody arrangements, they tend to go directly to the father's family in the case of divorce, career opportunities in law and medicine and beyond. They laid out all of the things that women in America were being denied. He has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice. He has made her, if married, in the eye of the law, civilly dead. Women's rights titans like Lucretia Mott and Susan B. Anthony were operating in this period. But it'll be another 60 years or so before women can vote. 60 years. How crazy is that? On that cheerful note, let's focus back in on our marriage prospect, Tom Hiddleston. How to woo him. You'll likely have been taught to sing, maybe play an instrument, speak a little French or Italian, and to do basic household things like sewing. Some women do go to school, but usually only to the age of 12. If they have money and the freedom to continue, they might learn Latin, French, Greek, math, even history and philosophy. But mostly, you would have been taught to be innocent and sweet and compliant. Because educating women can be dangerous. This isn't an extreme view. F.C. Fowler, a respected doctor and Harvard professor, wrote that going to college was more harmful to women than factory work, which is to say, extremely dangerous. It puts too much strain on our female brains. He warned that if women kept on insisting on college, the whole country would be sterile by 1910. Wait, have we gotten trapped inside The Handmaid's Tale? No? Sorry, I got confused for a minute. He'll need to go through your parents, of course, as you can't be alone with a man who isn't related to you. Even a first cousin. The queen did marry her, as you know. Well before Tinder. This is the main form of communication over short and long distances. 
Let's ignore Tom for a minute and talk about communication. The main ways to travel in this era are by foot, by carriage, by horse, by steamer, and by relatively new railroad. Think of how much farther apart everything is than what we're used to. Because we have money, we're more likely to travel long distances. But for a lot of women in this period, they're never going to travel that far outside of the place they're born. It would seem, through our eyes, that most women's views of the world at this time are pretty small. But the railroad and the electric telegraph, both of which first appeared in the 1830s, are revolutionizing our view of the world and our ability to travel through it. With printing technology becoming cheaper and transportation becoming faster and broader, Victorian America is becoming a much more intimate place. In the mid-19th century, both commercialized envelopes and stamps are still a relatively new thing. And the idea of mail order isn't here yet, but it's brewing. Letters can tell you a lot about a person and are a place you can get a little more bold. Writing letters with Tom might be a slower, but just as torturous version of flirting via text. When he says, as this real-life letter writer did, Every time I think of you, my heart flops up and down like a churn dasher. Does he mean, I love you, or I like the way your flesh jiggles? Either way, you have to figure out if he's really going to be a good match for you because his status and gentlemanly virtues are going to determine a lot of the comforts and privileges you can expect to enjoy. So let's say all goes well. Fast forward a few months and you're getting married. Try and imagine the wedding night. Women have been taught all their lives to feel ashamed of their sexual urges, encouraged not really to know their own bodies, and that pleasure is an embarrassment. Up until now, you'll have maybe enjoyed a kiss with this person you'll be lying down with, and neither one of you is likely to know much about how sex works. Of course, there are many guidebooks to help you through this difficult process, like The Lover's Marriage Lighthouse, a popular book published in 1858, which says that a wife must first fertilize the husband with her eyes, in a process called spiritual impregnation. Maybe that's why we're not supposed to look directly at strange men in the street. Have you impregnated anyone with your eyes today? Here's the thing about 19th century marriage contracts. You are essentially signing yourself over to your husband, and that means you're giving him consent forevermore to have sex with you whenever he likes. In fact, in 1857, A case called Commonwealth v. Fogarty officially recognized this contract defense for cases of marital rape. You did marry Tom of your own free will, after all. You knew what that meant, right? He can also divorce you if you won't have sex with him. But more about that in a minute. For now, let's try and enjoy ourselves. So what about birth control, you wonder? I mean, it is our duty to bear Tom Hiddleston's children, so probably you aren't going to worry about that too much. And you're probably already pregnant anyway, and going to spend a lot of time being so. But if you do want to do some family planning, withdrawal makes sense, though some experts, they're all men by the way, say it'll make you sterile. There are a couple of other forms of contraception. The first diaphragm was patented in the 1840s, called the Wife's Protector, though apparently it didn't work. Hence its sweet little nickname, the Wife's Tormentor. There's the rhythm method, too, but that won't work very well, because the wisdom of the day is that you should avoid sex before and during your period. So, precisely the opposite of accurate. Abstaining, too, is effective, but not overly popular. All right, fast forward, you're pregnant. Strap on your pregnancy corset and let's talk about it. The average woman in America at this time is having around six children, though since we're fairly well-to-do, we'll probably have less. You're going to have this baby at home, as is common. You'll probably be attended by a male doctor, who probably will keep the room dark so as not to offend anyone's modesty, and he'll probably not have washed his hands. 
But you might also just have women midwives, which is good because they probably understand how to help you better than a male doctor will. You're married to Tom, so this isn't something you'll have to worry about. But for unmarried women in labor, their midwife was often someone they confessed to. If you called out the name of the father while giving birth, he'd probably be made to marry you. People tended to think that whatever you said in that moment of excruciating pain was likely to be true. So what about pain management? Well, there was ether and chloroform. Queen Victoria used chloroform for one of her later deliveries in the 1850s, so it should be acceptable for us to use. Though some people say you shouldn't, as women were supposed to suffer, bearing the curse of Eve and all that. Childbirth is less dangerous mid-century than it was in the early part of the 1800s, when in the South, one in 25 women died during the act. But it's still a worry, because there are a lot of conditions doctors still don't understand. The biggest issue is infection from unclean hands and instruments. I won't go into too much detail here, but suffice it to say the recovery process didn't always run smooth. At this point in the century, you have about 40% of children dying by the age of five. 40%. You had to worry about a whole host of diseases. Tuberculosis, pneumonia, yellow fever, cholera, smallpox, diphtheria, and typhoid fever. Consider this. Three of Abraham Lincoln's four children died before they even hit adulthood. Two of disease typhoid fever, and consumption, which is basically the catch-all term for we don't know. That's why people tended to have several kids. You just couldn't be sure how many would live a full life. Other than having babies, you're going to be managing your household, going to church, managing the family's social calendar, and keeping correspondence. You're also planning dinners and other social engagements which can involve a confusing amount of etiquette and an extreme number of forks. Pasteurization arrived in the 1850s, but it's not really being practiced in a widespread way. Canning is a thing, but it still isn't something you can rely on not to spoil. Your diet is made up primarily of white flour, corn, salt, grease, and meat. There'll be vegetables around, too, depending on what you can grow or buy at the market. But vegetarianism is most certainly a fringe diet. Ice harvesting is at its most competitive right about now, so you should be able to make some attempt at refrigeration. But with questionable water sources and days-old meat, you still have to be in charge of worrying about dyspepsia. Or, in other words, seriously upset stomach problems. That might in 19th century parlance, leave you feeling all overish. Obviously, Tom is a glorious and progressive husband. But let's say you're having idle thoughts about divorce. What does that look like? Well, it's going to be hell on your reputation. You might as well start wearing around a big scarlet H. You know what that stands for. Harlot. But if you feel strongly about it, you'll have to prove to a male judge that you are a morally upstanding paragon and that your husband is either violent, a raging drunk, or insane. Even then, he's more likely than you are to get custody of the children. Children are the father's property, you know, just like you. Okay, so you, me, and Tom Hiddleston have been here in D.C. for about a year, making babies and trying to blend in but it's 1861 now, and that means the war is here. Trying to explain the Civil War is both simple and complicated. Boiled down, the war was about slavery, as a moral issue, but also as an economic and political one. The South wanted state sovereignty, the right to control their own destiny, and by that, they meant they wanted to control their own economy. And that economy was mired in the free labor of slavery. They felt the North meant to rule over them. The North just wanted them to fall in line. But how did these disagreements turn into four years of civil war? It helps to remember how big a part religion has to play and how both sides felt about the conflict. 
The North felt they were following God's plan by spreading democracy and preserving the Union. The South thought they were making that Union more perfect, in line with God's plan. God, country, reputation, and the notion of sacrifice all bound up together in a messy tangle. There's a lot to say about this war, its whys, its players, and its consequences for both women and men, poor and rich, enslaved and free, and throughout this season, we definitely will. But I want to put aside the whys of the war for a while and focus in on what it meant for women. This is a civil war, an internal war fought on home soil. So what did it actually do to women's lives? For one thing, it ripped their families apart. Let's think about where we are geographically. Washington, D.C. is right at the dividing line between North and South. Families here have found themselves ripped between the two causes, firing guns at each other. Take First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln. Her brother-in-law, Benjamin Hardin Helm, was a general in the Confederate Army. For women like her, no matter which side won, she was bound to lose something that mattered. As the war begins, women on both sides are filled with as much fervor for their cause as the men. There are men who don't even want to serve, and women who are mad as hell that they won't. In Ohio, volunteer numbers were so low at one point that a bunch of young ladies stepped forward and requested to have their names enrolled as volunteers in defense of their country and their rights, and said, as soon as they could be furnished with uniforms, they would leave their clothing to the young men who lacked the manliness to defend the flag of their country when it was assailed. A Mrs. Black of Boston was conscripted by mistake, but she still showed up to roll call, telling them that she wished no substitute. In the South, women were practically pushing their men out the door and into the arms of the Confederate military. They sing songs with titles like, I am bound to be a soldier's wife or die an old maid. Newspapers printed cartoons of girls in pants holding guns, standing over their beloved, saying, Either you or I, sir. One English immigrant in Arkansas wrote of Southern women, If every man did not hasten to battle, they vowed they would themselves rush out and meet the Yankee vandals. In a land where women were worshipped by men, such language made them war-mad. We'll sew clothing and blankets, and perhaps collect cash going door to door. We'll sell things at fairs and bazaars, too, though there are men who think that It merely looks unbecoming for a woman to stand behind a table and sell things. At the beginning, it was easy enough to be patriotic. Everyone thought the war would be over in a couple of months. But months turned into years, and women deeply feared they'd be left widows or would never get the chance to marry at all. The American Revolution saw 30,000 men become soldiers, while the Civil War saw almost 3 million. The death toll is estimated around 620,000 people, more than the total American fatalities in both world wars, the Mexican War, the Korean War, the War of 1812, and the Spanish-American War combined. We're talking 2% of the population. Today, that would be more than 6 million people. No matter what you think of the Southern cause, you can't help but feel for them. Three out of four white men fought in the war. One in five didn't survive it. Imagine what that meant for women with few job prospects, to be left without a wage-earning husband and, perhaps, left with his debts. Add to that the fact that around 50,000 civilians died in the war. The first civilian casualty was actually a woman. Too old to leave her cabin, she was shot through the wall by a stray bullet at the First Battle of Bull Run. As the war ground on, it took a huge toll on women. They found themselves running households and farms without help and without a lot of money. In the South, where most of the action happened, they had to face the threat of violence as well as grief. As supplies dwindled, some women and children were starving. In the South and West, towns got invaded and taken over multiple times before the war was out. With stories of terrible rapes and pillages, you have women in the South who are seriously afraid of what might happen to them in a war zone, particularly with so few men left behind. Many started carrying guns in their purses, 
sure that they would have to defend their own virtue. And then there are by far the war's biggest female casualties, African-American women. For them, this war is a life-changing, life-threatening situation, whether they're enslaved or free. In many ways, they have the most to gain from the war's potential outcome, but they also have the most to lose. In the first half of this episode, we were talking about crinolines and codes of gentlemanly conduct. So imagine the terror that seeing this kind of violence in your own backyard would strike into your heart. Imagine having to sit at home and wait and worry about your family and your fortunes. Imagine being in the South, watching your world turned into a war zone. Imagine being a black woman, enslaved or free, watching the battle for your very life being waged as you hover in its crosshairs, feeling utterly unable to change your fate. Except some women do change their fate, as well as the fate of the war, maybe even of the country. They'll step outside the confines of what's expected of them, doing more and being more than ever before. They'll matter in a whole lot of surprising, age-defying ways. I can't wait to introduce them to you. Until next time. Thanks for listening to The Exploress. If you liked it, please go and rate me on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other people to find me. For loads of great pictures to go along with each episode, follow me on Instagram at The Exploress Podcast. For show notes, including my research sources, suggested reading, and more, check out my website at www.theexploresspodcast.com. Come find me on Twitter at The Exploress Pod and my Facebook page at The Exploress Podcast. You can send me an email at theexplorespodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And to the following legends for their vocal stylings, John Armstrong, Billy Kaplan, Andrew Goldman, and Claire Burke. Next time on The Exploress. Bloomers. Enemas. Snipers, gangrene. They're all par for the course in the life of a Civil War nurse. We think of nursing as synonymous with women, but in the 19th century, it was primarily a man's game. Ladies had to fight for their right to tend to the wounded, and in stepping out of their private sphere, they found themselves facing dangers and freedoms they've never known before. In this episode... We'll slip into our lives as Civil War nurses, exploring the bizarre world of 19th century medicine and the many sights, sounds, and smells these ladies were asked to endure. We'll meet well-known nurses like Clara Barton and Louisa May Alcott and a whole host of ladies you've never heard of and need to. Grab your stethoscope. Let's go traveling. <laughs>